Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here on a warm day in a very deserted city of Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on the programme today by Nana Otu Ayorti. Nana is the Executive Director of Forward, the leading African women-led organisation working to end violence against women and girls. Nana, welcome to the programme. Great to have you on with us today. Thank you very much. It's really good to be with you today on a lovely day working inside. <laughs> lovely day working inside. Absolutely. It is strange times indeed. Now, um, Nana, this podcast is um, firstly about leadership and effective leadership uh, specifically. But what does that word leader actually mean to you? I think for me, leader is someone who has the power or basically is given the power to act and, and make decisions on, on behalf of others to help them achieve either a goal or a vision or to take them to a destination. Yeah, Absolutely. And um, if we think of ideal leaders, what sort of qualities ought they to have? I think for me, when I talk about ideal leadership, I'm, I'm somebody who is quite interested in, in um, I would say, feminist leadership. So I really... I uh, see my dream leader as somebody who is um, confident, a great uh, communicator, but also inspires others and mentors others, but is also very willing to be uh, collaborative and, and to nurture others to be able to you know, make a decision on behalf of others. So I think it's really about integrity as well and really having a, a sort of deep commitment to doing the right thing. Absolutely right. And I think uh, those qualities, particularly in your line of work as well, are hugely important for figures of leadership, aren't they? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And um, how would you describe your own uh, leadership style as well, Nana? And uh, how do you sort of take those qualities into your daily work? It's very interesting in terms of my work in forward. My leadership style, and as my staff would say, is is basically something that's transformative and and, and very participatory. I'm very keen in mentoring others, nurturing others, but I'm also quite firm when I need to be. And in terms of that, I also encourage um, cooperation. Um, I'm passionate about enabling, and that's something that my colleagues will always say, how do I enable um, direct people to do work, but support them to step up to, to leadership? I firmly believe that anybody can be a leader. So it's really about enabling people to step, step up to become leaders. And in our work as activists, you do have to be a leader to speak out at all times against uh, injustice and to push for equality, which we all want to fight for. Yeah. Exactly right. And um, you also talk about being firm when you uh, have to be as a leader as well. Um, and it can be quite a challenge, can't it, as a leader having to deal with conflicts when they do arise. Um, how do you go about dealing with those yourself if you have had to deal with conflict before? <laughs> and, you know, I mean, being a leader, you are a leader in different ways. And I would say that in terms of my role, I'm also a mother. I'm also an older sibling uh, and I'm also a manager of staff. So really, you're always having to sort of deal with conflict in one way or the other. And it's about taking urgent action, uh, depending on what the conflict is and what the situation is. Uh, and it's important to basically have a clear uh, approach to dealing with conflict. 
and to be fair in terms of you know allowing whoever is uh, aggrieved to um, air their views. Uh, so it's important to uh, to listen, get the facts uh, straight. But in organisations like you know you do need to also have clarity in terms of policy and how to sort of deal with some of these uh, conflicts so that everybody is aware in terms of what the process is. When it comes to the home, it's different. But I think in in uh, organizations, it's really about identifying the facts, uh, acknowledging the problem, and also engaging the different players where you need to also do some kind of research. Also, it's important to also do that uh, to really get uh, the facts rich in terms of um, dealing with the conflict, but definitely conflict would come in all our work. I mean, as activists, you see it happening all the time. Uh, we have different positions on an approach to even dealing with the work we do, particularly female genital mutilation, and you always have to sort of work with this kind of conflict, whether it's an activist or whether it's women who are involved or whether it's the government. So you see it happening all the time. Exactly. In your line of work, um, especially, um, I can see where you're coming from, you do have to deal with conflict quite a lot. And we talked an awful lot there as well about uh, your leadership style and um, how you um, impose yourself on um, the um, the organisation. Um, but are there any examples of uh, leaders, Nana, who've maybe inspired you and had an influence on that leadership style that you have, would you say? I think for me, there's been quite a number of leaders that have uh, inspired me. Um, I always talk about uh, being an African. I'm really inspired by African leaders who have led the way in quite difficult uh, circumstances. And I always think about uh, Wangari Matai, who was this uh, Kenyan um, activist who really pushed for uh, the Green Revolution in um, Kenya. And at the time when she started it, she was a lone voice. And she really pressed to push for um, trees to be protected. And today you go to Kenya and all trees are all over the place. There's so much greenery and people are enjoying what she fought for. And I think she was resilient. She was determined. But also she was uh, willing to bring others along because with such a revolution, you do need to get people to be on your side. And it's similar in my work also. I mean, Efra Dokenu, who was the founder of Forward, was a lone voice at the time when she was speaking against uh, female genital mutilation. Uh, African women were very much against her, but she was a determined force and uh, really, really helped to put this uh, work on female genital mutilation on the UK agenda. So for me, we I have quite a few, and I, I really believe that uh, being a lone voice is really positive, but it's about bringing others with you to really make that transformative change. It certainly is. Um, I think it's important for leaders to remember that in their endeavours, they're not alone, are they? It's just about um, the people around them as much as it is about them. And having a team of people around you who you can get the best out of, but also who can get the best out of you. It's so, so important, isn't it? Surrounding yourself with positive individuals as a leader. Definitely. Absolutely. So when you're looking at um, individuals, of course, to take with you as a leader and essentially champion that cause, um, what sorts of qualities do you look for within these individuals? You mean individuals that I, I work with? Yes, absolutely. 
I'm very, very clear that I, you know, it's, it's about, you know, making sure that you attract like people in, in your kind of activism and, and being able to uh, get individuals who are passionate. Uh, you do need to be passionate about gender equality, passionate about African women's rights, but also uh, being uh, willing to to go the extra mile because in my work it's not a nine to five kind of work it's having to sort of go beyond that early calls in the morning late calls at night having to sort of go beyond your comfort zone so it's about really getting people who are willing to go beyond that comfort zone being an activist really it's about bringing your all into the whole process so how do people demonstrate that they can bring their all into the kind of activism that we need to shift and make change happen. But most importantly, I think I'm quite also interested in getting people who are very much um, outspoken or willing to speak out and stand out around issues. So yes, experience of having been an activist, but most importantly, having the commitment and the passion. And and, and also willingness to, to seek for justice and, and, and what's right. So, yes, as I said, integrity. What I see in myself, I also see in others. Mm. It's interesting that you mentioned that, actually, that um, passion and commitment that people essentially have to carry into uh, roles like this. Um, If we think about that just for a moment, um, as that being a quality that you have to have beforehand, do you think that great leaders are born great leaders through those passions? Or do you think that they can learn to be great leaders and pick up new traits throughout time as well? You know, every every despite the fact that we may have leaders who have some commonalities, there are also some leaders who are quite different. And I think that um, I would don't. I mean, there are some people who stand out, but anybody can be a leader, and that's what I feel is necessary. Um, the work we do with young women leaders is an example of working with young women who would come into a space who would not even be able to speak out or talk about the issues, very quiet. But after the end of the process of nurturing and training and empowerment, they really stand out and are prepared to really speak out in any situation. So for me, I think, yes, there may be some born leaders, but you can also nurture you know, others to become leaders. Um, in terms of our own example, I mean, a lot of people would say, you know, who is your role model or a leader? All of us will talk about our mothers, you know, and very often that's a role that's really not uh, seen as important, but we see the leadership qualities in all mothers. So I think for me, definitely leaders are people that uh, can be nurtured uh, uh, to become great. I think it's really interesting that you mentioned mothers being great leaders as well, because quite often when we think of leadership figures, we are tempted to think about celebrities and sports personalities and politicians. But quite often the greatest leaders are people that are overlooked, aren't they, like parents? Definitely, definitely. We nurture the whole community, you know. So, I mean, and we're just seeing it where mothers have the skills and they have the the, the information and are given the opportunity. They do bring great leaders. So I think it's really important for us to also go to the basics. And really the work we do on FGM is the mother who makes a decision to stop cutting her daughter that breaks the cycle of uh, of abuse. So for me, it's really important to see this kind of role of mothers in really breaking the cycle of abuse. We have to engage those we do not recognize 
you know. And I mean, seeing right now, even in the news, the issue about care workers, mm. those who are the forefront, those are the people who really make the difference. And those are the leaders who really need to shout out and give them the praise. I think that's exactly where you're coming from. And I think you're absolutely right in saying that. And I think it is good that there is starting to be some sort of recognition toward these individuals now as well, because we're seeing um, most weeks people are going out on their doorsteps. They're clapping for those in the NHS, in care homes. And it's starting to be recognised, isn't it, in this time of crisis? It is amazing. It is amazing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it certainly is wonderful to see. And let's hope that we can take that um, sort of sense of uh, national unity and recognition forward beyond this as well. Um, I am conscious of running out of time, Nana, on today's programme. But before we do go about wrapping things up, if we stay on the topic of current affairs and COVID-19, uh, do tell me what you hope the next 12 months will bring for yourself and for the Forward organisation and what you really hope to achieve in that time, particularly navigating the outbreak and coming out the other side. I think for me, over the next 12 months, uh, if we do uh, see a light at the end of tunnel within the next three months or so, we're really quite keen on uh, scaling up our young women's leadership program, scaling up our community uh, women's um, leadership program, and really enabling community women and young women to be at the forefront. Uh, We want to really bring out issues around mental health and to really see how we can support community women who are affected by mental health. That's also one of the silent killers, and we really want to sort of bring it up. But most importantly, I think for us is to strengthen the partners that we work with nationally and also in Africa so that we can get an amplified voice and collective uh, determination to really bring change to the lives of women and girls. I think um, there's plenty of uh, thought-provoking stuff there, Nana, and let's hope that we do see those hopes borne out over the next few months. In fact, I think what would be fantastic for the listeners today is if um, in a few months' time we did have you back on the programme to look at what we've said retrospectively and just see how some of those hopes have been borne out. Um, But for now, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on today's programme. It's been incredibly insightful, and thank you so much for taking the time to come. It's been a really pleasure, nice pleasure speaking to you as well. Take good care, Scott. Take care, Nana. I really enjoyed today yourself as well. Um, Coming up next um, on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Liz Field. Liz is the Chief Executive of the Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association, which is the trade body for firms who provide investment management and financial advice services for individuals and families. Um, I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking to Liz, and that's coming up next. I'm Jonathan White, and we're joined today by Liz Field, CEO of PIMFA, Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association. What a great mouthful. Liz, thank you very much for coming on today. No, thank you for inviting me. No, not a problem. A complete pleasure. And I think uh, it would be a great place to start, if we may. There's maybe a little bit of background uh, for the listeners. Obviously, PIMFA does work in uh, uh, across the board these days, but of course it was only founded uh, uh, three years ago when, of course, um, MAPFA and uh, the WMA were merged. That's right, yes. Um, I think it really was a, a reflection of of where the industry was going in terms of uh, the provision of financial advice and helping individuals with their um, personal financial futures that 
we felt that it was necessary for the two bodies to merge together. Um, but both, had, well, certainly the Wealth Management Association and its predecessors have been around for nine, well, nearly 30 years yes. now, actually. But you're quite right. Um, as PIMFA, it's, it's been nearly three years now. And the uh, probably a very wise move because uh, the the uh, uh, has been going from strength to strength uh, since. Uh, what would you say at the moment? Uh, these are, are are the priorities uh, for yourselves there. Um, I think there are a number of priorities. I mean, we represent a diverse group of um, of businesses, which all have one thing in common, which is that they face the clients, they they face the consumer. Um, So whether that is face-to-face or whether that is um, online, uh, it's all about helping individuals to plan and save and invest um, for themselves and for their families. Uh, But we're going through uh, a number of of key challenges. I mean, um, looking at a a, a, a macro level, if you like, um, markets are a little turbulent. Um, It's it's very challenging um, to... um, Kind of navigate the the uh, investment management world. So uh, even more reason why you need a financial advisor and uh, and an investment management firm to help you, um, because it is quite a complex arena, and that's not helped by the lack of financial education uh, more generally. So um, if you have that as a backdrop, uh, and then politically you have what's going on um, with post Brexit uh, and where the rules are going to come from in future, all of that is still to be negotiated. Um, so it, it's a whole melting pot of issues that uh, that our firms are trying to face. Oh, without a doubt. I think uh, it, maybe Lizzie, quite a few understatements there in terms of the challenges that are yes. uh, occurring <laughs> at the moment. But there's quite a lot to pick up uh, uh, on the on those points because uh, I, I think it's, 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 a, it's a unique time almost, Lizzie, isn't it, where there are a different set of challenges that advisors and individuals are uh, being confronted with from a lot of different angles. Um, and perhaps if we can start, let's start at the beginning, in fact, you bring up the issue of financial education. Yeah. Now, that's something I think uh, you can talk to anybody in the business and they'd agree with you on that front, Liz. We don't do it properly in this country. Where no. do you think, Liz, it should start from and how do we fix it? Okay, so I think, I mean, the first thing to say is that there's a lot of fantastic effort that we see across the whole of the financial services sector, uh, our sector um, amongst that, where they they try and go into schools um, and provide financial education. You go onto any website um, of some of our members and they've got some great educational material. Um, but there isn't a national framework that 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 wraps itself around the whole of the financial education efforts within our industry. And without that, um, I think they're, they're the the businesses are facing a lot of um, barriers when it comes to actually getting into schools. Um, I mean, financial education is part of 
the um, per, I think it's personal health and social education um, a piece of the curriculum, but there isn't an exam um, that's at the end of it. So when it comes to schools and, and how they're being judged, it's on metrics such as um, exams and without an exam for financial education, um, I think uh, it's go- it's just it's just going to keep coming up against the same barriers. Mm. Um, and financial education is not the same as maths. So uh, what we'd also quite like to see is is that we have more um, kind of money type questions within the maths curriculum, because that will also then bring it to life uh, for young people, for uh, youngsters and you know school kids. It will bring it to life because it's about things that they have to deal with or, you know, that they they deal with on a day-to-day basis, which is money. So the more that we have that is populated in the curriculum that is about money, um, the better, I think, because that then we'll start to promote a culture of, of savings and investments, which we so badly need in our in in in, in our um, in our country. Without a doubt, Liz, because and again, you've hit the nail on the head. Because there's only so much that can be done without the involvement of the curriculum in schools. Yeah, uh, and you know, you can, as you've pointed out very well, uh, it, companies can try all they all they might, but it, it's difficult if it's not a, a joint effort. Uh, yeah. And I think as, um, uh, for example, uh, with, with the new government we have, there have already been positive noises at the very least. Whether they become actions is another <laughs> thing entirely regarding what you could consider a, for, a, a far more applied mathematics in, in a lot of uh, uh, the system. But ty- time will tell. And that's something I think we could probably dedicate in the next hour to. Liz, yes, I think you're right. We, we probably <laughs> shouldn't. Um now, looking at and a couple of other points to pick up that you've already raised here, Liz, uh, and it goes back to the word you've already said, which is uncertainty. Uh, it, it seemed as if the markets, investors, people, we've been in a state of limbo for the last three and a half years. Uh, we're talking, of course, three months after, two months after uh, a general election that resulted in a a large majority with the Conservative Party, and therefore at least we have now uh, uh, left the European Union without without dragging you down the political rabbit hole here, uh, Liz. Is there a hope now that because of that clarity, we may start to see a far more s- far more certainty in the market? And what are your hopes for the next twelve months? Um, I think. I think that we've still got a little way to go because um, whilst, you know, 31st of January came and went, um, you know, we're now we're now in a negotiation period. We're now in a transition period. Um, and for for UK um, savers and uh, and investors, uh, in terms of where the rules are made, there's still there's still not some clarity about that. Um, you know, we're we're still uh, well, we don't know yet whether we're still tied um, or will be tied to the um, European rulemaking um, down the line. That's still to be negotiated. I mean, we've always said that actually for for savers and investors, we need stability in the markets and we need access to funds. Um, however, it, you know. The, the majority of our of our firms look after UK savers, um, and therefore, a one of the positives we see is the ability to have a a rule book 
that makes sense for UK savers and investors and UK firms. Um, so there's an, uh, we think that there's an opportunity there with definitely without um, watering down regulation. So we're definitely not talking about less regulation. Mm-hmm. What we're talking about is smarter mm-hmm. regulation, which makes sense for firms and makes sense for clients. Um, and as we've got a very unique industry in terms of savings and investments um, um, in, Euro- in Europe, England, or U- the UK rather, and, and Ireland are unique amongst our European counterparties. So when you have a European rule book or a rule book that is set in Europe that doesn't bear any relation to the model of intermediation that we have here, that has caused us problems in the past, and we're hoping that we we will be able to affect that in the future with a local regulator and a local rule and a local rulemaker. But we will see. That is still all part of the of the melting pot. So whilst I'd like to be posit- positive and, and optimistic about the market, <laughs> um, we've still got this period um, of uh, of negotiation and uh, until we see where we go to with that. Uh, and of course, you've got financial services and fisheries amongst yeah, the same two, piece, you know. <laughs> famous fellows, aren't they? Indeed, um, absolutely, absolutely. So we've still got to wait and see, I think. It, absolutely. Um, and it will be an uh, interesting year, num- if nothing else. Um, yeah. uh, now, you, you, you mentioned there, at least uh, the role of, uh, of course, regulators. I know uh, in the last month or so, obviously, uh, uh, PIMFA has. Uh, given its fair amount of critique to um, the FCA, um, are they at the moment doing their job correctly? Um, I think part, I I don't envy the regulator one iota. Um, uh, I think if you look at the the number of people that they have in the supervisory team and the number of firms that they have to regulate, um, it, it, it is not an enviable job um, by any stretch of the imagination. Yes, we have been critical, not least of all because we are expecting um, better supervision to prevent firms from failing and certainly to prevent firms from failing in the spectacular way that they have uh, in the last few years, which has impacted on the size of the financial services compensation scheme levy. And this levy is paid for by by firms within the industry. And our firms are a majority of small to medium-sized firms, and their bills have gone up exponentially. Our criticism is that, you know, we we don't object to having an FSCS levy um, or, you know, the lifeboat yes. funds to pay, you know, recompense to to consumers. Uh, and, and our view is has always been that the polluter pays. But the polluters have, have long since folded by the time mm. it comes to any payment, which means that good firms are paying for bad firms. So the system, we believe, is broken. Um, and, and I think that is about the regulatory perimeter. Um, you know, what is it that the, that the lifeboat fund should be protecting? The perimeter is too big. So that 
you know, what is the nature of risk? That all needs to be um, uh, redefined, we believe, and recalibrated, which then enables you to determine, well, if that's what risk is, then how do we protect it and how do we levy for it? Mm -hmm. Um, And that is all linked to better supervision. So that is something we have been critical about. Um, We're in the process of finalizing a paper uh, which we um, which we have positioned in a constructive manner, which is these are some of the things that we believe FCA you should be looking at in your supervisory process, and we want to help you to do your job better. Now I I know there's no such thing as a a magic wand, Liz, and perhaps it'll be putting you on the spot. <laughs> but if let's imagine let's let's imagine you did have one just for the just for this afternoon perhaps, and you were able to change one thing about that. Uh, system, and perhaps I shouldn't ask this because if your report isn't out yet, you might want to reveal something that's in it. Um, but if you could, um, w- what would be your number one priority? If we, if we were to, if I, w- my number one priority to to solve the system in terms of reform. In terms of reform, what regulatory yeah, reform yes. you mean? Um, I think. Oh goodness me, the one thing. Um, it is a bit of a mean I, question. Uh, it <laughs> is. Gosh, yes. Wow. Um, I, I think it's about the regulatory perimeter. Sure. Um, I, I think let's have a look at the regulatory perimeter, um, which is, you know, gives some certainty to to clients about what is protected and what is not protected, which also then gives some assurity both to them and also to the advisors who have to advise those clients on what, What's the pathway to success for them? And what? And and I think if there's some clarity around all of that, then everybody will be will be better off. Great. Now I'm conscious of the time here, Liz. It's already catching up with us. So perhaps if we can take a a little step back and uh, and look at um at the operations of Pimfer again. It's what Pimfer do, does so well is its ability to build relationships with so many uh, different uh, organisations. Can that really, Liz, be underestimated, the importance of having those working relationships with, with the departments and the organisations that you do have? No, I don't. I, I think it's absolutely fundamental um, to any business, actually. Mm. But it's certainly something that that we have in the middle of the stick of rock that is PIMFA. Uh, I mean, we talk about the, you know, the values that we have as an organization. We, we are a small organization uh, and we can't do our job unless we work in partnership and collaboration with others. So relationship building um, and maintaining and creating a good foundation of relationships is absolutely fundamental to what we do. Without a doubt, and I, I think that's the key point, Liz, isn't it? That that's so applicable to any realm, whether it's business or or politics or uh, any areas of life. And I think, and because of the time here, we we I, I must start to wrap up. But um, perhaps I can ask Liz, looking forward, and I know the next twelve months is full of uncertainty. What are uh, the plans Pimfer has for it, nonetheless? Um, so I think our well, our key priority this this next twelve months is 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 to be talking um, much more, um, and we 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 have been lobbying um, a fair bit on this. But because of Brexit, um, our ability to actually kind of get into um, see the policymakers 
on both sides, I think, to have that dialogue has been a challenge. Um, but we're finding that that is changing. They, you know, they, they want to hear from us. So I think our priority is around that regulatory perimeter. Um, and what does what does regulation look like for uh, for us moving forward? But at the same time, it's not just about the future of regulation, but it's also about the future of supervision, because the two of those go hand in hand. Um, so those those two um, are kind of what are, are the main the main areas over the course of this next year. Having said that, um, you know, we have a manifesto that's got six that's got six pillars in it. Um and regulation and supervision and the future of that is is just um kind of is just one of those things. There are a whole host of another of other things. Promoting the sector as a as a force for good and as an integral part of a of an individual's kit bag um, for financial and mental well-being uh, is is another key strand of, of activity. So I think future of regulation, future of supervision, and then promoting the sector as an integral part of uh, of um, everybody's kit bag in building their personal financial futures. Well, Liz, there might never be a, a more important year. Uh, it, it has not been in a while that will determine the future of all of those things and perhaps never a year where so many people pay attention to what happens to Britain's fish stocks um, but it's been <laughs> it's an absolute pleasure discussing that uh, leadership with you today uh, I hope very much we can sit down perhaps later this year uh, when there's a bit more clarity perhaps and talk through a few more things Thank you, I would love to do that Liz, Thank you very much Thank you This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.